flowers have long been a symbol of love around the world. Roses on Mother's Day from mom, an apology from a distance lover, or delivered from your best friend on your birthday. And while there's a market for locally driven food and beverages, the market for locally grown flowers hasn't quite caught up yet. Our guest today started her company with a dream, a mission to change that. And it was a mission not without challenges. And so what they did is they then called the farms and said, if you sell to Farm Girl, we will never buy from you again. And these are very established wholesalers, super established wholesalers that have been buying from the person that's now running farms, dad and grandfather. Christina Stumble shares with us her journey to lands near and far that led to the iconic farm girl flowers we know today. I'm Carolyn Kissick. And I'm Colleen King. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress for this episode on cut flowers, what it's like to be the first to disrupt a supply chain, and why these burlap wrap bouquets are more special than you think. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. <laughs> this was a really awesome opportunity to go interview Christina in the San Francisco Flower Mart. It was my first time to the Flower Mart. It's basically like a large warehouse that has stalls uh, with vendors inside, and it's typically for a wholesale purchase point, but the public is allowed, so we got to go. It's just a magical little place, and I think it's so cool that her or their office is still in the building. It's like literally, like you ring the doorbell outside of the flower mart and you go up into Farm Girl Flower's office. Very cool that they're still there because they originally moved there partially out of strategy, partially out of necessity, and then it kind of put a target on their back. You'll hear in the interview what really went wrong, but for them to really stand their ground and still be there, like, go get them, girl. So when we first started research for this interview, I didn't realize that most cut flowers are actually imported. And they're typically coming from Central and South America, but specifically, most flowers are coming from Colombia. Let's talk a little bit about the international policies that have shaped this migration of the industry down to South America. The Andean Trade Preference Act was enacted in 1991 by George H.W. Bush uh, to encourage the Andean countries of Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru to reduce conflict crops like coca from being cultivated and trafficked, and it allowed him as president to grant tariff preferences to these qualifying countries if they met certain criteria. And there were multiple things passed, right? Yeah, so there was an additional piece of policy that went through called the U.S.-Columbia Trade Promotion Agreement that rolled back import fees on Colombian flowers specifically and allowed uh, the United States to export other products to Colombia. So it was kind of, it's a trade preference act. Uh, But that definitely was kind of like the securing piece. And I mean, very quickly, we saw farms in the U.S. either going under or moving to Colombia, right? I mean, these are giant operations down there. Yeah, absolutely. When you go to Colombia, do you see these flower farms and stuff? I would love to go sometime. But whenever I go to Colombia, I typically fly into Bogota and then I stay overnight because I take a hopper plane to go to the areas that I need to go to for coffee sourcing. But I talked to a few friends that live in Bogota and it's kind of cold there. It's sort of similar to San Francisco weather where it's like fall or it's spring all the time. What's really cool about Bogota is even though they have this temperate weather, 
they have access to all of these amazing fruits and flowers because the second you go down the mountain, that's where the growing regions are. So the growing regions are northwest of Bogota um, and the lower elevation, sort of the valleys. And then the equator is just south of Bogota. So it's sort of this perfect area to be able to do tons of growing and it's on my list. Definitely want to go. Let's get into the interview. Here we go. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to begin by asking you how you had the idea of starting a company like Farm Girl Flowers. I was working at Stanford University, and one of the departments I oversaw was the events department at the law school. And when the economic downturn happened, uh, all the budgets were cut. And of course, events and marketing in those areas are always the ones that get cut first. And so I was looking through our our P&Ls, and I was just amazed by how much we were spending on the flowers and the decor for these events that we were hosting. Um, and these were like development events where we're asking alums for millions of dollars. And so I just started researching um, that weekend. I remember after looking at it, you know, going home and researching the, the flower space and very quickly shifting from the event space to the e-com space because there were basically three companies that these giant companies had just monopolized three quarters of the entire space. Okay. And e-com is delivery? Yes, the, the e-com, like, you know, going online and ordering and then delivering anywhere nationwide, sure. um, that space. And so it was like three companies making up, you know, three quarters of the whole, the $3.2 billion in that space. And then I would think about, like, you know, the experience I had when I would purchase from one of those companies. Right. And it wasn't great at all. I would spend an hour sorting through like 200 options and I would narrow it down to like the least ugly option is how I would kind of classify it. It would usually be like an all white bouquet because I'm like, how can they get that wrong? And then I would, you know, think it's going to cost me 40 or 50 bucks. It ended up costing a hundred dollars by the time I checked out. And then what was delivered to my mom in Northern Indiana never looked anything like what I thought it was going to. And it looked like something that came from the grocery store that should have cost like $8 instead of 80. And so um, when I was researching the space, I saw that the e-com space was actually declining at that point, and that made no sense to me. I was like, in 2010, every industry was going to e-com, right. and if it was on e-com, it was growing so rapidly that it, you know, it was like hand over, you know, leaps and bounds, hand over feet, like growth rates, and for it not to be that in flowers. I understood why, because everybody was having that same experience that I was having when I was on flowers, and so it was one of the first business ideas I had where. I saw a real problem. I wasn't just creating a problem to try to solve. Sure. The market size was big enough that if I could take some market share from one of these three companies, um, I could take a, a significant, you know, even just a couple percent of that would be a very large number. Yeah. And um, I could also bootstrap it. So the last uh, point that I needed it to tick was that I needed to be able to bootstrap the company because I don't have a college education. I didn't have a pedigree, one of the tech pedigrees from out here where you worked at Google, Apple, or Facebook. Um, so I knew there was no way I could go to outside, you know, to venture capitalists and get them to invest in a company. So I had a little tiny nest egg of $49,000, and which I thought back then was a ton of money. Um, and it went very quickly. <laughs> but I thought that was a significant enough amount to start a business. This was one that because I lived in an area that had a really robust flower market here in San Francisco, I could start it here and buy small amounts of flowers to start, which was really important. We'll probably get into later on the sourcing. Yeah. Side, but that that allowed me to be able to. If I was like in back in Bremen, Indiana, where I grew up, I wouldn't have been able to start this company. Sure. But because of where I lived, it allowed me to. Okay, that's amazing. So you know that you can bootstrap it. Um, you're getting the know-how. You are making your plans, and 
One thing that I really respect about your brand and yourself is how transparent you are on your website about your troubles in sourcing. I mean, you can just go on there and you can learn all about how difficult it was for you to make a change in this industry. Um, and I know one thing that was really important to you was working with American farmers early on, um, but that posed a lot of difficulties. So I'd love for you to sort of talk about um, what your values were when you got started and how that related to your sourcing. When I first started, it was really important to me to only use domestic flour. So that was one of the big missions and the principles that I built Farm Girl on. And why was that? Um, I did it for a few reasons. I grew up on a farm, like I said, and so agriculture, I knew the importance of agriculture to a community. I knew that firsthand. I saw it firsthand. And I was reading all these stories about local farms that were just going out of business left and right because they couldn't compete with South America pricing. And that hit a nerve for me. I thought that was really sad. And I thought... If I brought consumers to them, meaning like, you know, people were choosing to buy from us and we were choosing to buy domestic, that these local farms would basically see me as this, you know, this, you know, superhero to them. You know, I would come in on my white horse with my checkbook flailing and be like, I'm here to save the day, you guys. Don't worry. Got it. We're here to buy all your flowers. Exactly. We'll buy them all. Didn't happen like that. I was, uh... You know, I just thought if the, the supply and demand, you know, economics would, would work for them, um, but it didn't. Um, most domestic farmers are multi-generational, um, so they're, they're not set up as businesses. You know, I come from commodity crops, which are run more like business operations. Flowers are not like that. Um, flower farmers, I mean, a large farm has, you know, 50 to 100 acres, um, maybe a couple hundred acres, you know, whereas in commodity crops, it's, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres. So it's just run differently when it's a third generation. And I've done a lot of research since and, you know, multi-generational, not just farms, but businesses in general, you know, the second generation has a 66% failure rate, third generation has a 92% failure rate, and that's in business in general. It's no different in farms. So, you know, when it's a grandson of the person that started the farm and they've always been doing things a certain way, they a lot of times just keep the status quo. They're not trying to think outside the box. They're not changing with anything else is changing in the world. Um, a lot of them honestly saw me as like, you know, who is this little girl coming into this space and thinking that they're going to, you know, she's going to like come in and change things. You know, this like internet things like a blip, you know, like that's how they were thinking, you know. And right. so they would like laugh at me. They would literally just laugh at me. Um, and wouldn't sell to me. They're like, we only sell to wholesalers. Um, so I fought that. I got a wholesale license. Thought then I'll just like be a wholesaler, you know, if that's what I need to do. That didn't work. Then they were just like, oh, now, you know, we're just not going to sell to you. And then, um, you know, I fast forward, you know, I kept growing, kept growing, got a lot of great press. I thought that would help, you know. Uh, New York Times Today Show did some really big press things. And I thought, okay, well, now they're going to see you. Like, we're serious. Like, we're, you know, one of the fastest growing private companies, you know, <laughs> like all these things. And that didn't help. Um, it really, you know, I, I kept trying and trying and to make it work. And we were just out of flowers. We were out of, and you know, flowers from people that would sell to us. We had some amazing farms, I should, should mention. We had some, still do, have some amazing farms. Um, just met last week with the first farm that would sell to us um, that is now custom growing for us as well. Okay, so you do have longstanding relationships with American farmers, and I'm super curious. So what do you think is the main difference between the farmers that said, I'm sorry, it's too big of a risk, I can't work with you, and the farmers that said, I see this as an opportunity? So I think the difference is uh, people that have a business mindset versus don't have a business mindset. So um, the, farm, the first farm that would sell to us outside of the flower mart where we 
here are here. Um, they took a lot of heat for even selling to us. So what happened, um, just going to give you all the dirty down low on what happened. Um, so I moved out of my apartment into the San Francisco Flower Mart when my landlord, who was a corporate attorney, found out I was running an illegal business from my dining room two years in <laughs> and told me I had to get Farm Girl out of the apartment. So um, moved into an 1,100 square foot space here below where we're sitting right now in the San Francisco Flower Mart. That was probably one of the biggest mistakes I could have made. So it was the most economical um, for me to move in there because it was much cheaper than if I, in San Francisco, went out and got a commercial lease here. Um, however, it made me very visible to all the wholesalers. And so what would happen is the wholesalers were seeing how fast I was growing. I hired my first employee in 2012 when we moved in here. And you know, a year later, we're at 16 employees. And a year later, we're at 30 employees. And um, we kept taking on more and more space at the, the flower mart here. And so we became basically like a bullseye on us, like, you know, people complaining. There was all kinds of, you know, petitions to the flower mart to try to get us kicked out. There was all kinds of craziness. The florist really didn't like us. That would be like a really soft way of saying it because we were inadvertently taking business away from them. And I didn't mean to take it away from the local florist, but that happens. That's just collateral damage. Right. And, you know, I didn't like I said, it wasn't intentional, but that's what happened. And so they were upset and they're like, the only reason that Farm Girl's growing is because they're at the San Francisco Flower Mart. And that had nothing to do with that. But then the wholesalers are upset because they're seeing all the trucks that are coming in with, with things for us. And so what they did is they then called the farms and said, if you sell to Farm Girl, we will never buy from you again. And these are very established wholesalers, wow. super established wholesalers that have been buying from the person that's now running the farm's dad and grandfather. Right. And, you know, if we are a blip and if we do end up closing our doors next month and this huge wholesaler isn't buying from them anymore, it would really hurt them. Even though, it, you know, right now we are probably 10 times larger in, in what we're purchasing than any of the wholesalers here. Um, so we, you know, right now it would look really good for them and lucrative for them to sell to us. But it's a risk for them. And so the first farm that allowed us to buy from them, not at the flower mart, that happened. The, one of the biggest wholesalers called and said, if you sell the farm roll, we're pulling our account. He said, he came back to me and he said, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a risk, you know, on you guys. Please don't screw us, basically. Right. And that was probably six and a half years ago. And um, we still have a great relationship to this day. But that wholesaler stopped buying from them for like two weeks. And then needed their flowers and so started buying from them again. And so um, he basically called their bluff. And then once they saw that this farm, who's a pretty large, pretty substantial sized farm, was still selling to us, then other people would still sell to us at that size. Now, these are not huge growers. They're, you know, they're big for, for the United States, but there's not a lot of huge growers left in the United States because their land's just worth too much money. So they have, you know, have sold a lot of their land, most of the large farms. And you started sourcing internationally in 2017, is that right? Yes. So started in 2017. Um, I should have started in probably 2015. So looking back on it, one of my big regrets is trying so hard for so long. Because in 2016, we only received 26% of our confirmed orders that whole year, which is, makes it impossible to run an efficient business. Um, yeah, we were getting confirmed, confirmations on orders. Wait, like POs? 
Yes. And that still happens to this day. And usually with domestic farmers. So it's not intentional. They're not, it's not malicious. They're not, you know, like I'm going to, you know, screw farm girl. It's not like they're confirming and then just not sending. It's that their, their business practices are over forecasting. They're under delivering. It's weather related, but they're not um, doing any kind of modeling that would project that for them. And, you know, so then they get 10% or have 20% of what they think they're going to have available, and they're not going to just give it to one customer. So then everybody gets 5% of what they ordered of that. So what would then happen for us is we would have to then come to the, the flower mart once we moved out. So we were here for three and a half years, I think, and then moved into a bigger warehouse. And um, we'd have to come here. We'd have to buy out all the wholesalers, those same wholesalers that screwed us. There's no other word for it, but just screwed us out of our flowers. <laughs> One of them literally two weeks before Mother's Day went to the farm, told them, if you sell, if you give those peonies that Farm Girls already ordered from you, we're pulling our account. The farm got scared, so took our peonies. And then that same wholesaler came back to us and said, I hear you don't have any peonies, and sold them back to us no. for 50 cents a stem more. Like, literally, these are the games 30. that are played in flowers. And that's a difference of, like, $30,000 difference that you have to pay. Because these are, like, huge amounts that we're ordering. We're hundred, hundreds of thousands of, of stems of things that we're ordering. So it's not like it's 50 cents a stem and it ends up being 500 bucks. It's like, no, it's a difference of $30,000 is what it cost us that year for that wow. in just one, one crop. Is this why you said you think you should have started sourcing internationally earlier? I should have way earlier, but I tried and tried and tried. And what it boiled down to, like the, the kind of defining moment for me was there's a really large farm here in the U.S. that would not sell to me direct. Um, it's a tulip farm. And uh, he, I tried everything. I went to Washington and lobbied with them because he's in the cut flower commission here. I tried everything and would not sell to me, kept saying that I don't sell to um, retailers, only to wholesalers. Um, I knew that he sold to one of the large giant e-com companies or two of them. Um, he said, those are the only ones that I sell to. I don't sell to any of the new like e-com ones. And then I got an email forwarded to me of one of our competitors that's male owned and younger than us and smaller than us with their order from this farm. No. And proof that they had been ordering from this farm and buying from this farm for over a year. So they just didn't want to sell to you. They just didn't want to sell to me. And I had to go uh, basically threaten a gender discrimination lawsuit and say there's no other, no other reason that you're not selling to me other than I'm a woman because I've been in business longer than this company. I have more revenue than this company. And yet you're, you're lying to me straight up. And here's the emails that you told me that you weren't selling retail. Yeah. And um, they were selling to me the next Monday after I said if I, I was going through my lawyers the next week if I wasn't able to buy direct. But the fact that I have to go buy from people that I that have to threaten with gender discrimination lawsuits to get them. So that was the moment that I said, and I also talked to the head of the California Cut Flower Commission who told me that my responsibility to this industry, just sit there with that for a second, like I have a responsibility to an industry that won't sell to me, um, <laughs> is uh, that I stump my growth in order for them to catch up and decide they want to sell to me. Wow. Um, yeah, that week of that happening was a real defining moment for me where I was like, why am I working so hard to fight for an industry that doesn't want saving? Like, I was literally like, I am trying so hard to do this to bring, you know, local agriculture back since it was such a huge part of, you know, the California landscape here. And for what? For what? So I just then decided, no more. I'm, I'm done fighting. Um, 
it was, like I said, probably two years after when I should have done this and come to this realization. And so I just started then. I went on a trip down to South America. I went and met Farms, um, a good friend of mine in the industry. He uh, used to buy for one of the large companies, and he um, connected me with farms that he knew ethically would meet the um, requirements that I would want to make sure um, that the farms were doing with, in, you know, medical with, for their teams, paying them living wages for the country. From your experience, how common is that? Um, it's not, I think that when I first researched international sourcing, I heard the worst case scenarios right. and I read the worst case scenarios and I saw the worst case scenarios on the videos. And most of those were from like the 80s. Um, things have changed a lot since then. Uh, I needed to see it for myself to know that that was the case. And I have to say all of the farms that we work with in South America um, that I have met treat their teams and have better resources and, and benefits for their teams than I would say 90% of the U.S. farmers that we work with. Wow. And I understand why from the U.S. farmer standpoint, though. I mean, we do not make it easy for companies here in the U.S. at all. And we expect them to compete with um, imports that it's, it's an imp impossible playing field for them. It just is. I, I understand that. So I'm not trying to like beat anybody up. It's just it's different. I mean, international sourcing is just so complicated, but it really helps to be able to be on the ground and see how your money is being used, that impact. Yeah, I mean, one of the Rose Farms we work with um, has built a school for all the kids because um, it's mainly women that work there harvesting the crops. And um, another one is building homes where uh, they're doing like a combined uh, interest, uh, you know, loan with the bank with lower interest rates for them. I mean, they're just doing, you know, they have washers and dryers there, which bought them back a full day of doing laundry. Um, manually. So there's, they're just doing really great things for their teams. And um, I didn't see that, you know, when I was researching until I went down there and actually saw it. Um, from what I've heard, it was pretty bad, you know, and then it's been regulated now since then. And now there's newer countries like in Africa that are getting involved in the floral trade and those are not regulated yet. And so it's to be careful of those areas. So it's just really knowing where your flowers come from, just like everything else when you're sourcing to make sure that you're working with farms that you believe meet you know, the, the values that you want. I'm really curious how you were received once you went down there. I mean, you were having so much trouble sourcing in the U.S. And then once you went down to South America, were you sort of received with open arms and they were like so excited to do business with you? Yeah, it is now. At first, it was funny. I thought that I would go to South America and be really uh, anonymous because I'd only ever bought flowers here. But because I had gotten so much great press, which was amazing for us, for our growth, they knew who I was and they weren't happy with me because I, I was basically touting how great American flowers are and that we should only be supporting American. And I'll never forget when uh, I was visiting one of the Rose Farms down in Ecuador that we work with, an amazing farm, amazing family farm. Uh, and we were picking up, we were going to dinner, but picking up uh, his son. It's very familial there. Like you go and you like hang out with your families and stuff, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. We're picking up his son from his school before going to dinner. And his son, when I was in the car with him, was like, why are you here? Like really kind of with some animosity. Like, why are you here? You don't like Ecuadorian farms. You don't like us. Like, wow. and I was like, oh my goodness. Like I messed up. <laughs> like I, so I needed to apologize. And also I needed to learn. I like, I was ignorant. I was completely ignorant to this. And I needed to admit I was ignorant and say, I'm sorry. And I was wrong. And I, you know, went with what I read, which was not always true, at least not true 30 years after sure. the research had been done. And 
So I needed, I didn't start off on at zero. I started off at like negative 10 with them and had to build up to zero. And now it's amazing. It's like, I, we get almost 100% of our confirmed orders internationally. We still probably only get about 50% of domestic 40 to 50%. Wow, that's amazing. And the quality is just as high? Yes, the quality is amazing. The transportation has been difficult to figure out the transportation here with such high perishability. So that was a, a big thing for us. Um, but the quality is amazing. They also, because they're real business people, <laughs> um, and this is their livelihood. It's not like they inherited 100 acres of prime real estate from their grandfather or their father. Um, they need it to feed their children, to feed their families. And so they, they do business very differently than most of the American farms that we work with. Interesting. And so I'd love to go dive deeper into the international sourcing. So from what I understand, we import significantly more flowers than we actually produce ourselves. Is that right? Yes, 80% of the flowers that are sold in the United States are, are imported, and that was from 2010, um, that statistic. If we did the statistic again, especially after cannabis has been legalized, I would say it's probably like 90 to 95%. Um, the flower industry is trying to kind of keep that quiet. I'm not sure why. I mean, if they're making more money um, growing cannabis, then grow cannabis. I mean, like it's... Yeah you know, what they need to do to stay in business. And I actually applaud them for switching and actually thinking outside the box and doing something that's going to be financially more lucrative for them. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. so if they can get $1.50 a square foot for, for greenhouse space for cannabis versus five cents in growing flowers per square foot, then do it, you know. But, um, you know, that has definitely... Um, impacted the flower space though a lot. Wow, that's an even larger number than what I had even imagined. So that means when I'm running late for a dinner party and I just run in and grab a bouquet from somewhere, um, almost certainly that's not coming from American farmers. Yes. Okay. Um, what's interesting to me is, you know, there's some negativity around buying from us because it's not supporting local florists. And I get that. Um, I totally understand that. I'm all for supporting small businesses in your community. Um, what I find interesting is that most people assume that because they're supporting the local florist, that means they're locally grown flowers. And 99.9% .9 of the time, that is not the case at all. Um, there's a great resource called slowflowers.com where if you want to find American-grown flowers and florists that use them, you can go on there and look by your area and find someone who will, and I encourage people to do that. I think that's amazing, um, especially, you know, smaller farms throughout the United States and the Midwest and stuff. They have a lot of, like, great florists there that will use their flowers, and then the transportation costs, the oil that's used, and even getting them to and fro is so much better, you know? But for the most part, when people are just like, oh, you're, you know, buying all these bad imports from this company and then, you know, go support your local florist, they're coming from the same place, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. We actually probably buy more American-grown flowers than 99.9% .9 of any of the local florists. Okay, so you did achieve your dream. I did. I did yeah. achieve it. It just had to change a bit. So, I mean, we still bought, like, last year, um, we probably spent about $8 million on flowers. We probably bought $8 million worth of flowers. And of that last year, at least $3 million were domestic. So that's a lot of domestic flowers to be buying. Um, the year before that, it was 80% were domestic. So it's gradually going to more imported because we need to. Yeah. Um, and because there's not, with cannabis, there's not as many flowers here. Um, but it, we're still buying as much as we possibly can. We still support the American flower farmers that can provide the flowers to us. We buy it from them first when we can, um, or all the time, as long as they have transportation to us, even if it costs us double what that stem would cost us in Ecuador or something like that. 
Okay, so I would love to touch on the perishability aspect because a lot of people don't know this, but coffee is perishable and there's an embryo, it's alive. Um, and the most stressful part of my job is getting everything shipping in time um, to make sure that that quality remains super high. Um, so I'm super curious about the things that you do in order to get this, these flowers, which the purpose of is to be beautiful and alive and smell good um, and to enhance your home and your life. And it is so fragile. And I'm curious, how long does it take, let's say from a farm in Colombia, I know that they have a huge export industry, um, to get their flowers to your warehouse in San Francisco? It depends how you're transporting it. And this is something I had to learn. Um, so you really have to know each individual flower and how you should transport it. So if it's if it's flowers that are extremely perishable and bruise easily, you might want to fly it here. So FedEx IPD will fly it door of the farm to your door and it gets to you in 72 hours. Wow. Um, whereas other ones that have longer perishability, you know, carnations are, you know, a, you know, they can go for weeks, you know, which is amazing, which is why so many people use them so much. Um, but, you know, tulips have a longer life, um, you know, bulb, anything that grows with a bulb has a longer lifespan. So, you know, you would fly it to Miami and then truck it from Miami and then it's going to be here in, you know, four days. So it's, it's knowing the flower type and then determining the transportation that you want to get. If it's coming from, you know, coming from east, from like Europe, then you're going through Miami, then you might fly it from Miami here, or you might truck it, depending on what the flower is. So it's every vendor we work with, every farm we work with, um, we have a little bit different um, transportation method based on the flower type. Mm -hmm. There's also, you have to have people consolidating them, um, you know, at the, at, in Miami, and some fly to LAX, and some go to Miami. So it's, 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 it's a big puzzle. Yes. And with perishability, I just, I mean, if I had known how hard perishability is, I never would have started Farm Girl. I say that with a thousand percent certainty. Um, I'm really glad I did start Farm Girl, so I'm glad I was really naive with that. But it is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I often joke that I think after doing this, you know, having a per highly perishable product uh, that needs to be then not just perishable coming to us, but perishable going out. So we have to overnight ship everything right. and we have to make everything with our hands. We have to redesign. Every single thing is designed. So it's not like I'm making a sweater in China and I make one pattern and then they're making thousands of them. I need to have designers that have to design every single product every day that will exceed our customers' expectations every single time. It's the hardest thing. I think that after this, I could go do anything, and it would seem like <laughs> a cakewalk after this. Sure. We basically have three days. So we can't mess once up. Yes, we have three days uh, once it arrives yeah. to get it back out. Um, and we ship everything overnight, so then it can have the longest, it can have a week um, in our customers' hands to be able to enjoy them. Right. And so it, if we mess up our ordering, it can break our entire company and we're hundred percent bootstrapped still. So it's not like we have $5 million sitting in the bank. You know, our margins are so slim. We run at basically a 0% net profit margin for the year in order to grow the company and put it back into marketing sure. um, to fuel our growth. So if we over order by 10%, that's enough to, I mean, be a huge issue for us. And what are the, some of the things that you have control of um, that can maintain quality. So for example, I read that it's really important to have them in sort of a controlled environment at a specific temperature. Cold chain is really important. Um, so all the trucking companies we use have to have cold, like not break cold chain is our, our goal. And that's a specific temperature? 
Yeah, so it needs to be a specific temperature. It needs to stay refrigerated until it reaches our door. So the big shifts in temperature, there's a lot you can you can test this. There's these little uh, temperature gauge controls that you can put in your boxes and test it um, to make sure it's not breaking cold chain to see if the trucking company says that it's in a reefer truck, but it's actually not in a reefer truck. And you'll see it can get up to like the 80s in those boxes if it's not in a refrigerated truck because there's so many of them with oxygen, you know, in those trucks. Um, so it can become basically like a sauna in there if it's not in refrigerated trucks. So um, it's really important. You pay a lot more for transportation and reefer trucks, but it's really important to do that. So that's what we do. From Miami, it'll be in a reefer truck the whole way. Okay, so is that why sometimes you order flowers online and then they get delivered to you and they're sort of like wilted and just kind of look like they've been through a rough journey? They may have been refrigerated. It's pretty standard to have them refrigerated. However, what's not standard is how long uh, a lot of companies will keep uh, flowers in-house when they shouldn't. So okay. the three days is our, um, that's like, our criteria for when we'll get rid of it, we won't send out flowers that we know are not fresh. It's just, it's not what we would do. It doesn't fit our values. And other companies, um, the reason we use very different flowers than what most of our competitors, I haven't seen any of our competitors use all the flower varieties that we use. Um, and the reason they don't is because they have a much lower lifespan than other ones. So the reason that everybody, you know, it's a bad rap that I love carnations, but carnations get such a bad rap. <laughs> carnations and Alstroemeria and mums, button mums, all those get like, you see them in every grocery store. You see them in every like e-com company, the big ones that you go and look at. It's because you can keep those like on a pallet in a warehouse for two weeks. And that's what's happening. They're going from the farm to their distribution centers throughout the United States. And then they're sitting on pallets. And then those, you know, basically third-party shippers, 3PLs, will then take them off the pallet, put them in the box and ship them out to the customer, which could be a week and a half after that pallet arrived. Right. We wouldn't do that. So that's just, you know, it, but we also can use then much higher quality, more expensive, more amazing flowers that women actually want to receive sure. because we're keeping them for three days or less. It's so amazing because I feel like you found people that no one was talking to in the market and knew what they wanted, but in order to execute it, you had to have these very tight procedures to make sure that everything was in place in order to actually pull it off. Yes, basically that's what every woman wants. What Another thing that was surprising to me was that women are the consumers of flowers. So when I started Farm Girl, I started, well, when I started researching it, before I started it, I was blown away because I was like, what? 80% of people that buy flowers are women, which didn't make any, I thought there was all men buying for women because that's what all the marketing that you see is like, oh, right. get her all these red roses and baby's breath ugliness, you know, like blah, 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 you know? <laughs> and for some reason, teddy bears, which I feel is a little bit like a pedophile, but like, it's yeah, weird. it's so it's weird. weird. I'm not seven. I don't want a teddy bear, you know? <laughs> but um, so I just assumed it was men, but it's not. It's women buying for women because every woman knows how it feels to receive flowers. Right. And so you want to give that to all your girlfriends and sisters and moms and everybody. Sure. So, um, you know, I think that, most of the other com well, all of the other companies that I know of that are large scale are 100 percent owned by men, and uh, they don't. I, I feel like they just don't understand that you know if the consumer is women, they want different things. Right. They just do. So yeah. you know we've done focus groups around it. Um, Valentine's Day is our, our least favorite time of the whole year because it's the only time that men buy flowers. It becomes 90 percent male and 10% female. Um, and what male consumers want is very different. <laughs> I even did a focus group two years ago after Valentine's Day where, um, two or three years, we heard, it was the first time that I had heard all these crazy, it was 2016, where, you know, customer service is like, you know, we're hearing this feedback that the, they're boring, the flowers are boring, and they're meh. And I'm like, 
what's meh? I don't know what that means. You know, so I called a couple of the men that had complained. And well, first of all, I called customers that complained. I found out they're all men. Okay. Cause it's Valentine's day. And I was like, this is they They couldn't like put their finger on it. They're like, well, they're smaller than I thought. And I'm like, I've never heard that before. Everyone talks about how big our bouquets are. And I just couldn't figure it out. So I did an email focus group where I had 40 women and 40 men um, that had bought from us more than three times. And I just asked, hey, you'll receive a free bouquet if you just answer one email question for me. Filled up that focus group in like three minutes flat and just sent them two pictures. And I made both of them. One was a bouquet that was um, our normal, you know, we usually pick like two bold colors, some muted tones and neutrals that are complementary, mm-hmm. you know, like burgundy and peach and orange tones. And then I sent one and it used our like regular bouquet or regular flowers in that one. So it was like calories and and garden roses and peonies and thing, ranunculas, things like that. And then the other one, um, you, it was, we called it a Crayola box. It had every color of the Crayola box in that bouquet. And they were really big headed flowers, like sunflowers and Gerber daisies and things like that. And it looked twice as big as the other one. They both had 20 stems. They both were $78 retail. And I said, which one do you prefer? And sent it out. And um, it, was the, it was fascinating. So, um, of the 40 women, all 40 chose our regular standard bouquet. Sure. And of the men, 39 out of 40 of them chose the Crayola box. Really? Yes. Carolyn is losing her shit. And that then I was so like, typical. It's right? So it's so typical. Yeah. It's so funny. It was like size mattered. The colors, they wanted it in your face. They wanted it gaudy. They're like this other pale thing. There's nothing special about that. And we're like, right. no, no, no. Look at that David Austin rose in it. That's so funny because it sounds like you're sort of describing like a conventional bouquet. And I don't want to say that in a bad way, but it's sort of just meant to like fill up a vase. It doesn't feel as like personal. And for me, I love textures. I love weird looking flowers. I like things that sort of look like they should grow under the sea, but somehow are like miraculously growing above ground. Um, and it's, it's always been hard to receive that kind of bouquet. Definitely. It, in, it, the perceived value for men is in the size of the bouquet. And in how loud it is, where the perceived value for women in the bouquet is the delicateness of it and the design of it, and that it was like thoughtful and design, thoughtfully designed. And um, the little details that are sometimes the tiniest things really matter to them. That's fascinating. So now we, we change what we do for Valentine's Day based on that. You do the larger ones or? We do. We add in, uh, one more bold color in it. Um, we do a lot of red roses mixed into the bouquets to make them happy because I think red roses are what they that women want, even though they aren't. But then we mix them with like ranunculus, which is actually what women want. <laughs> so we try to like just kind of like game, sure. <laughs> game them a little for it. So funny. Okay, so I think we pretty much covered everything that I wanted to, but I have a few extra questions um, if you don't mind. So... Do you have a favorite flower? And if so, will you describe it to me? Yeah, so um, my favorite flower changes from time to time. I think my my staple favorite flower is a King Protea, just because they're so different and they're so expensive. So we don't get to use them very much, so I don't get tired of them. (laughs) Um, They look like these giant, almost like microphones. Um, And they're in this really pretty light pink color. They're just beautiful. They're so stunning. Um, Any kind of Protea I just love not any kind, most. Um, I'm not a big yellow flower person, so there's some yellow ones that aren't my favorite. But um, proteas are amazing. Um, ranunculas, there's some new varieties of ranunculas uh, that are just amazing and look just like peonies, but even prettier, I think. 
Um, Icelandic poppies are really hard to use in arrangements, but they're beautiful. That's my favorite. Is it? Oh. Do you know the um, the trick of lighting uh, the bottom of them, the stems, no. to get them to pop? To get them to open, um, if you cut the stems and then you take a lighter to the bottom and uh, and burn, singe the ends, it'll help them open quicker. So cool. They're beautiful. Thank you so much, Christina. It's been so wonderful to chat with you and learn from you. I have one more question. If you could wake up tomorrow and be an expert in sourcing in any other field, what would you do? Mm, that's a great question. Um, after this, I think I would uh, really like to do something non-perishable. <laughs> so um, I would probably do sourcing for like uh, textiles, like sustainable textiles or um, something in the beauty space that still has some perishability, but not three days, you know, sure. <laughs> something like that. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks again to Christina for taking the time to chat with us. You can find more about Farm Girl Flowers at Farm Girl Flowers and farmgirlflowers.com. And stay tuned for our music segment, where our music curator discusses the musical and cultural identity of the region and product discussed in the episode. And if you haven't yet, please like and subscribe. You can find us online at sorceress underscore underscore. We are a small group of radical women trying to make it happen, and your support means so much. Hello, hello. This is Danielle Maggio delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Today I'm focusing on music from Colombia, although many of the genres and instruments and dances definitely traverse borders through Ecuador and also Panama. Our playlist is going to feature traditional music, all that originated in Colombia, as well as contemporary pop music. But for this segment, I want to feature the traditional styles and think about how they're examples of musical hybridity. Colombia has an incredibly rich cultural heritage. I mean, it really acts as this intangible reflection of the influences and cultures from indigenous communities, Spanish colonialism and settlers, and forced African migration. Like many countries in the Americas, indigenous peoples inhabited and lived and thrived for centuries prior to the arrival of colonial powers. You had native groups such as the Choco Indians using song and dance as a way to structure life events, whether it be social or spiritual. One of the things that I find so moving about indigenous music making is the idea of talent and performance really doesn't exist in the way that we understand it. So this idea that to be a musician or to be a performer, you have to have a certain amount of talent, some kind of skill, uh, perhaps even training, that just doesn't exist in the indigenous context of music making. With the arrival of the Spanish at the end of the 15th century, indigenous Colombia was forced to assimilate to European religious, political, and cultural systems. The forced migration of West Africans via the transatlantic slave trade began in the 16th century and lasted until 1851. The traditional music and dance style of Corulao from the Afro-Colombian coastal region provides the foundation for a lot of genres throughout the country. 
This style is most heavily influenced by the music and dance of West Africa. So you'll have musical characteristics like call and response, which is a huge indicator of that. In the Andean region, one of the predominant folk styles is bambuco, which essentially sounds a lot like Spanish guitar music infused with Afro-Columbian rhythms. The beat structure is actually similar to a European waltz, and bambuco is performed as a couple's dance. In the Caribbean region, the folk music style of vallenato originated from cattle farmers who inherited the tradition of Spanish street performers known as juglares, which roughly translates to jesters. Keeping in the classic tradition of folklore, vallenato is said to have begun with Francisco el Hombre, or Francisco the Man, who allegedly defeated the devil in a musical contest. This folklore myth of a man crossing paths with the devil in order to legitimize his musical talent is a common trope amongst the African diaspora. So here I'm thinking specifically of the African-American Delta Blues tradition. While Vallenato uses the indigenous kuacharaka and the African caja drum, it's the European accordion which has come to really define this genre. So you have three main instruments, that make up one genre, which originated from three separate continents and cultures. Without a doubt, the most popular style of music and dance in Colombia is cumbia. Cumbia originated in the Caribbean region during the Spanish colonial period. Cumbia actually began as a courtship dance practiced amongst the West African population in order to mimic Colombia's Spanish colonizers and how they danced. Originally using only percussion and vocals, cumbia has evolved to include maracas and gaitas. And of course, now modern groups use saxophones, trumpets, keyboards, and trombones. By the 1950s, a more refined, i.e. middle-class, modern, westernized form of cumbia was established. This is due in large part to the expansion of musical hybridity that happened when Colombian music started to incorporate American elements like jazz and big band and swing. Ethnomusicologist Stephen Feld introduced the idea of sound structure as social structure. Colombian music has evolved out of its very own cultural hybridity. You have a mix of indigenous roots, European conquest, and forced African migration, creating this dynamic, intense soundscape for its society. Whether it's indigenous communities making music in a ritual context, or farmers making Spanish street entertainment into their own unique folklore, or West Africans mimicking the ruling colonial class, the sound structure of Colombian music is inseparable from its social structure. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous, fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. Special thanks to our donors who all helped make this possible. Megan King, Ray King, 
Christopher Kissick, Deb Maggio, Gus and Mary Ann Bonderhide, Jose Posadas, Courtney Minnick, Jen Apodaca, Vanessa Brown, Jonathan Joseph, and Max Keeley. We couldn't have done it without you. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress. Until next time, stay curious.